enough. You have to do more. I'm sure it's a blow to your ego. And at the same time, it is also a jolt of clarity. You know exactly how you're perceived and how you know what you need to do to improve upon. At best, confrontation is an invitation for self-improvement. And this is exactly what Syrah Rao and Regina Jackson bring to the table. Literally, when you sit down for dinner with them. So don't expect this to be your normal dinner. Syrah and Regina are the co-founders of Race to Dinner, an organization that gives white women the opportunity to address their own racism through a sit-down dinner they pay for. It's innovative and it pushes social boundaries to get to the heart of the matter. I sat down with them and we had a long, robust, honest, raw conversation. And at the end of the interview, I had to really revisit my relationship with white women in my life, mostly my friends. And what I realized was that I have seen both sides of the story. I have white women as friends who've been there, who are my strongest support system, But at the same time, I have experienced my friendship with white women who just want to be at the center of everything. And rather than being allies to what I am doing and be part of my success, they want to focus on themselves. And if they see any racism, any discrimination, they would rather keep quiet. So I hope you guys listen to this conversation and at the end of the conversation, take something positive from it. It may not sound pleasant. It is extremely raw. As I said, it is extremely honest. Nothing like you've ever heard before. But I really believe that it's time we had these tough conversations. Take a listen and enjoy. So to cut it even finer, I said, if you had a gun to your head and you had to trade places with me, an Indian woman or Regina, a black woman, who would you trade places with? A hundred percent chose what? You. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah. So I'm so excited to have you guys here. And before we start, for our listeners who are not familiar with Race to Dinner, could you give us a background story and what's inspired both of you to start this? Okay, Syra ran for Congress against a longtime incumbent in Denver. And I worked on Syra's campaign. Hmm. What Syra did that was so different is she started talking about race and the U.S. and how racist it is and how hard it is for people of color to get a foothold in this country. Well, as you might imagine, white liberals came after her Mm -hmm. and most of them were women and they wanted to go to breakfast lunch dinner coffee cocktails with Syra and basically say not me Mm -hmm. you know I'm not that white woman so Syra did it for a while and I'll let her tell you the piece about yeah so you know in white ass Denver Colorado you have to get lots 
votes of white people. So I was obligated in my mind to meet with all these white ladies during my congressional run. And as Regina said, I mean, breakfast, coffees, dinners, cocktails, and without fail, without fail, it was, you've got me wrong. That's not me because, you know, the rest of us are all a monolith. I mean, Asian American, seriously, Mm -hmm. um, black people, monolith, but Mm -hmm. white people are the ones who are individuals. So they need to come tell us Mm -hmm. how not me, not me, you've got me wrong. And so I was out dollars, time. Of course, they never picked up the um, the tab. So I, you know, paid for all this stuff too. And mental health bills. I mean, the amount of therapy I was in to survive all this nonsense was outrageous. So that ended, right? I lost my race in June of 2018. And you would think that these white ladies would go humbly and softly into the night. They won. They crushed me. But no, it got even more ferocious through the fall. And more invitations. And I was trying to be magnanimous, like women of color always have to be. So I would oblige. And then one day on Facebook, this was the fall of 2018, I um, posted something extremely radical for white ladies, Hmm. which is I called Beto O'Rourke a white savior. Okay. (laughs) And and I caveated it with, I would still vote for Beto O'Rourke if I lived in Texas over Ted Cruz. And I gave him 25 bucks. So you can actually walk and chew gum at the same time. You can be a white savior and you could be the best option out there. And by the way, I'm sorry, look at the Democratic primary right now. What are our options? Our options are a bunch of white men like that. Those are the options. (laughs) So um, you can be a white savior and the best option out there. Right. So anyway, one of Regina's friends, we'll call her Jenny. Hmm. Jenny went batshit on my Facebook, like burned it down, called people names, called me a bunch of names, unfollowed me, blocked me. Like there was like steam coming off of my, uh, <laughs> off of my computer. From Jenny. And then the following this happens. same woman comes to me and she says, and we were friends. We are no longer friends. And that's a different story. But she says, Regina, she said, I am so done with Syrah. She hates white people. But if you can talk to her to see if she'll go to lunch with me, I'd like to go to lunch with her. And I have seen that with my interactions as well. On the one hand, uh, white women don't want to be called racist. And on the other hand, if you call them racist, they will, as you said, unfollow, be angry at you, but they still want to have dinner or lunch with you and clarify that they are not racist. Exactly. And this so is so confusing, exactly right? What was going on? So uh, I went to Syra and said, Regina. No, you said Syra. I said, Syra. <laughs> she said, I'm not doing that anymore. Mm. She said, but if Jenny wants to have a dinner, and invite a bunch of her white friends, and you do it with me, she said, then we can do that. We can have a dinner. And thus was born Race to Dinner. Actually, that was the first dinner, but that was just a one-off. And and the first one, in fact, so we invited Jenny, and I called up a friend of mine who is one of my last white women friends who we've been through it, and like we've had some knockout, drag-out fights, but here's the thing. She gets back up, and dusts herself off and is back at it, you know? Sarah, when you say your last, one last white (laughs) friend, have you lost all your white friends? I would say because I used to be a white woman, um, nobody was more surprised than me that I was not a white woman when I realized that like three years ago. In in Um, what ways were you a white woman and why? I was incredibly self-loathing. I was, you know, born and raised in Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy, 
there were no Indians. There were no Asians. It was black people and white people. Hmm. And I was taught to assimilate. And we all know what assimilation (laughs) means for immigrant communities. It's not assimilating to black culture. It's assimilating to white culture at the expense of black people. Hmm. And what, what, I mean, this is a whole other thing, right? Like white people created the situation where we are employed to keep black people down and that, and that keeps, you know, keeps white supremacy in place. So I did just that. I mean, there was 25 Indian families in Richmond. I had very little contact with my family in India. We, we, we didn't go back to India very often. Hmm. And so, I mean, it was, I grew up with white people. And so I thought, I mean, I, I aspired greatly to whiteness. I mean, I was extremely self-loathing. I remember when I was a little kid begging and praying to whatever God would listen to turn me white. And then I realized somewhere around the time I was 10 or 11 that that wasn't going to happen. And so I would just do the next best thing, which is become a white person. I was president of my high school. I was captain of the hockey, lacrosse and basketball team. When I got plucked out of classes to go show around other families of color, I was asked to put on those one of those cute dresses that you wear so you know look you too can turn your brown or black kid into a white person (laughs) then I went to the University of Virginia I joined an all-white sorority I mean I I was you can't even make this shit up I I was making out with white guys and confederate flags calling me exotic but here's the thing I have interviewed so many kids of immigrants. I am an immigrant and I have two girls, so I can Uh somehow relate to that. I think most kids of immigrants, they go through some sort of identity crisis as they are growing up. There is a struggle. Mm -hmm. They all want to be white. Believe you me, I'm sure my daughters want to be white even now. And as they grow older and then they realize what their identity is and then they come to terms with their identity and they try to assert it as well. So don't mm-hmm. you think you're being too harsh on yourself? It is a common experience for all kids of immigrants to want to be part of the dominant population. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely like moving through the self-loathing phase. But this is all, you know, it's it's I, I get it. But part of this work of dismantling white supremacy is dismantling, you know, decolonizing yourself. You know, that's going to be a lifelong process. But back to this dinner that we had, Jenny... We had this first dinner at my friend Katie's house hmm. and Jenny, Jenny just went through, I mean, she literally was the greatest hits of white fragility. So she went through all her crying and can't we just love each other and all this nonsense. I mean, total nonsense. And then we had the dinner at her house. Wait, hmm. so the way this happened, let me just tell you how the, so that was in December of 2018. Okay. okay? And that was a one-off. Regina and I went home and we were like, God damn, like it really, she really brought it. Um, and then I actually ended up taking my kids to India for the first time, which is another whole story, but came back and this was last year. This is right around this time last year. I ran into Jenny and Jenny was listening to um, like, a, like listening to an audiobook when I ran into her. I think she was listening to White Fragility. I mean, you can't even make this shit up. And, um, and she goes, I finally understand. I understand what you and Regina were saying. I would love to have a dinner at my house and invite my friends. And I was like, okay, great. So I call Regina. Regina's like, all right, let's do it. Yeah. So you know what she does? She invites, you know, she invites seven white ladies and she doesn't tell them why they're there. They think they're coming to a dinner party. Oh, that's we, bad. We assume that they know why they're coming. So we did what we do at all these now race to dinners, it wasn't a race to dinner then, it was just a dinner, huh. uh, ask them all to say something about themselves. 
And then we went in like the white lady to my, to my right is, was a 30 something yoga instructor. <laughs> and I immediately jumped in and I said, white yoga in the Western world is cultural appropriation. So they had no, again, they had no clue that that's why they were here. So it was a shocking thing for them to hear that. And then the white lady next to her, who wasn't even friends with her, leans over and literally like tries to grab me by the collar and demands that I apologize to the yoga instructor, at which point the yoga instructor is like, no, 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 don't apologize. She's right. And the angry white lady said, well, what, I mean, what are these yoga studios supposed to do? And I said, they should hire black and brown yoga instructors. Mm. And she said, well, I, I mean, where are they going to find them? And before I could even open my mouth, the white yoga instructor said, there are lots of black and brown yoga instructors who try to get jobs at these white owned yoga studios. And they're white owned yoga studios because white people have access to resources and open can open up these studios. She said, they never get the jobs. In fact, I have had conversations with the owners of these studios that it's not right. Mm. So then the white angry white lady sits down. She needed to hear. She didn't believe me. Right? So she needed to hear a white woman. From a white woman, yeah. Right. And I'll let Regina talk about what the white lady to her left did to her. Oh, and then we had this white Jewish woman who grew up in the South. I'm thinking, I don't remember. I just remember the South. Oh, Missouri. Missouri. Mm -hmm. And she talked about her mother being a civil rights worker. And she kept saying, you don't know what it's like to be called a nigger lover. Kept saying that to Regina. <laughs> yeah, kept. And then another one got really angry. And she that one at the end. Yes. Yeah. And she started talking about how she worked on Hillary's campaign. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, how yeah. she carried and knocked on doors and everything. You know, and it, it just proves the point that white women have to center themselves in all things. In all things, and also how they, she wasn't even get. She kept saying, "But I, but I worked on Hillary's campaign," and we were like, "That's white feminism." Like, what are you not getting about this? Yeah, you know, like, but so that one was truly. I mean, it was it was that shit. So, how many dinners have you had so far? Probably like fifteen or sixteen. Yeah, we've had fifteen or sixteen. Two in Chicago, and the rest all in the rest in Denver. But we're like, since this Guardian piece came out, we've got tons all over the country. But but what happened? The reason this even turned into a thing is, I got home that night, and it, yeah. we must have been there for three hours. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was truly. I mean, it was outrageous. And I got home, and and I had to pay my babysitter. I paid my babysitter seventy five dollars, and I thought to myself, you know what? Fool me one million, two billion times, but and it's your fault. But then now it's my fault. Like, what am I doing? You know, like, why am I doing this? This is so ridiculous. So the next morning, I woke up and I posted about it on Facebook, and within a couple of hours, it had gone com completely viral. Completely viral. Hmm. We want to do a dinner. We want to do a dinner. And Regina and I were like, you know what? If people actually want to do this. And we've been doing this. What if we just do it, but hmm. but make it into an organization hmm. and charge people for our time so we don't feel so taken advantage of and yeah. that we're not laboring for free. Hmm. And Regina came up with the name Race to Dinner, and that's last year, a year yeah. ago. And I'm, Syra and I are like on the opposite ends of the pole. I was born in 1950, so the America I remember was black and white, period. Huh. Everything was black and white. You know, we went to school together. I never went to a segregated school because my family was military. Mm -hmm. But my friends also were not really white, you know. 
in high school, especially, you know, you kind of stayed with your group. So I have very, very low expectations of white people. So, Regina, based on that and based on your experiences growing up, how do you decide what parts of your experience you want to share during these conversations and what parts you just want to keep private? You know, there's a there's not a whole lot that I I grew up at a time when, like I say, it was black and white, but I was also in a military base. So in the military, you don't have that kind of separation. You know, we all went to school together. We all went to swimming pools together, Mm -hmm. all of that. So there isn't a lot that I don't share. But for me, the real issues are that white people do not speak up when they see other people being harmed. Mm -hmm. When they see racist behavior, they just pretend like they didn't see it. Or they act like it really didn't happen. And for me, that is so hard for me to accept. You know, just letting another person be mistreated. When you're there, you have a voice and you can stop it. The way I see it, this racism, which is an implicit bias, is an unfortunate byproduct of being part of a dominant population. It's true for every culture and every racial, ethnic, religious majority for instance if we go to like i am from pakistan and i was part of the dominant population and because of being part of dominant population sometimes people don't realize or they don't see the kind of racism or biases that are so pervasive and so in your face because they are not the target of that racism or those biases. So do you think that is the case? No, let me tell you why. (laughs) Because uh, Jane Elliott, who is a elderly white woman now, Mm -hmm. but started doing this work in the 60s when she was a second grade teacher in Iowa. Mm -hmm. And Jane Elliott speaks to large, large crowds. You should watch one of her videos. Yeah, she's on YouTube. Here's Here's how she starts it. Okay, all of you white people who would happily trade places with a black person in our society, please stand up. Hmm. She goes, okay, well, you must have not understood the question. So I'll ask again, any of you who would happily trade places with a black person, she goes, okay. She says, this tells me, you know what's going on. You know you don't want it for you. And you want it for others. So, Sabia, let me just add a couple layers to that because we, we can attest to this at every dinner. So, taking a page from the book of Jane Elliott, and we both are fangirling because we're going to go, um, in, we're going to, we're doing a documentary film on our work mm. and we get to go meet with her in a couple weeks mm. in California. But we start every dinner with how many of you in this, at this table, raise your hand if you would trade places with me or Regina. Now, it's now been hundreds of women, right? Right. How many do you think have raised their hand? Just uh, guess. One? It might have been one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and she was probably lying. And then, so to cut it even finer, I said, if you had a gun to your head and you had to trade places with me, an Indian woman, or Regina, a black woman, who would you trade places with? A hundred percent chose what? You. Yes. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Then, I'm not surprised. So, yeah. So, so they, they, do, know. they know. They know. Yeah. Just like Sadia, you know that we've been trained to be anti-black. 
you know, yeah. you know that how it uh, just like in, in, in India and what's happening in India is is just so such an, an abomination. Mm-hmm. Hindus in India know exactly how they've been trained to hate Muslims from birth. What we do at dinners, though. So what is less clear is all the permutations and nuances. So let's go back to the example of what happened at the grocery store with Regina. Mm-hmm. OK, mm-hmm. when she said, can you move, you know, move your cart? That was the signal of move your cart. This woman's reaction was straight up, how dare you, black, black woman, woman, tell, tell me, me what, what to do. do. Okay. Yeah. Then she took it further. She essentially called 911 <laughs> on a black woman. So I think we need to stop massaging these white people. So what we do, we've changed our methodology because um, one of white women's favorite thing to do is remain silent yep. at dinner <laughs> um, and let other white women quote, like throw themselves under the bus. And then they always, the silent women are there to quote, listen and learn when they already know. So they're listening and learning at other people's expenses. So what we've, we've changed and it's been a revelation is we no longer say, raise your hand if you're racist, because you already know you're racist. We have to assume if you're at the dinner, you already know you're racist. Yeah. Name one racist thing you've done recently, because then it's actually taking theory and putting it into practice and the wokest of the bunch stumble over their words, stumble over themselves, can't like pull it together. But I would say 75% say something and tell the truth hmm. and they know they actually know. So I'll know. give you one example from a recent dinner in Chicago, white woman nurse said she had been in a meeting a month earlier with nine other white women colleagues, nurses and doctors, and they were in a meeting with their white male doctor. And he said their goal for 2020 as a practice should be to hire fewer foreign-born doctors. Oh, wow. These yeah. Are, these are people in charge of uh, black and brown bodies, okay? Uh. Guess what she did, Savia? Just take a guess. Yeah, she did nothing. She didn't utter a peep. And then we said, so, okay, what did everyone else do? Nothing. nothing. So what's worse? The guy who says the xenophobic racist shit or the sea of white women who put their tacit stamp of approval by saying nothing. And that's where that's our beef. It's the silence. I want to talk about something that, Saira, you do during dinner. So you introduce yourself by calling yourself as part of the solution and part of the problem. And you're part of the problem because you are. And I'll quote this. You're Indian and anti-black, and you already mentioned this. I think that's that's a great way to introduce yourself because you immediately address the fact that Asian Americans are anti-black. And it also doesn't really take away from the fact that you're not just trying to take on this woman of color identity without addressing the inherent issues that are present. Do you expand on this throughout the dinner or do you shift focus to white women then? And you don't talk about this, you know, once you've mentioned it in the beginning. We talk about it. And what is so interesting is Cyra will do that. And all these white women will look at each other and they'll look at me and I'll go, you guys, black people know, we know everybody thinks they're better than us. This is no surprise. It's no secret. We know. Yeah. So that is their first instinct is to pit me and Regina against each other. We are doing this. We are very intentional. Like there's something extremely radical about a black woman in the model minority Hmm. being in sisterhood with each other against whiteness and being impervious 
to their need to divide us. And by the way, all of this work requires complete transparency and intellectual honesty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Regina's even said, I mean, you sh- she's even said, she was like, look, I was trained to be scared of Asians. Mm-hmm. So I went to, which is xenophobia, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And tell them what you did. I took a international assignment with my company and went and lived in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia to, to explore that and lose her fear of Asians. So what was your experience like, Regina, in Malaysia? You know, I really loved it. They're a Muslim country, but they're very, um, you know, you just get to be who you are. You don't did, you have feel, to... did you feel a tremendous amount of anti-Black racism against you? No, I didn't. What I saw is people were very curious about me. Mm-hmm. You know, they wanted to look at me and they wanted to stare at me, but I didn't feel at any point that it was anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or racist. or racist. Yeah, I didn't feel racist. And most Muslim countries are normal countries and it's like this narrative that's created in the west and especially in the u.s that somehow all muslim countries are these scary places to live it's not true i grew up in pakistan and it's pretty normal country of course and and i find a lot of people are as dark as me yeah yeah this is so it's all made up right so yeah it's all made up and so yes so let me yes we do we do i do talk a bit more. So I, I oftentimes give the following example. So growing up in Virginia with these 25 families, we'd often spend our weekends together, you know, having Indian food at some, each other's homes. Huh. And I remember I must've been my daughter's age, uh, 11 years old, 10, 11 years old. And at most of these parties, the aunties and uncles would sit around talking about how racist the Americans were. We know who the Americans are. <laughs> the Americans are white. Yeah. <laughs> how racist the Americans were. And then they turn and start saying, derogatory things about black people. Absolutely. I left this one night and I said to my parents, you know, in the car, I remember we were in the, I was in the back of the Impala. Hmm. And I said, this feels really weird. You know, on the one hand, we're talking about how racist the Americans are. And on the other hand, you know, you all are saying these awful things about black people. Hmm. And they just said, well, that's just the way it is. And I think that's a very poignant thing because it really is emblematic of the culture, right? It's like, that's just the way it is. And I never asked again, because that's just the way it was. And by the way, when I would come home and talk about how racist the American kids were to me at school, that was the same response. That's just the way it is. Hmm. So I never talked about it with my parents after like the one time that I, when I did in fourth grade. And so that's how you can be on the receiving end of racism and also on the giving end of racism. Sarah, do you think it's generational, though? Because now when I see myself with my kids, if they come home and they talk about racism and if they've been you know, affected by it, I am very explicit about how they should express their agency and how important it is for them to do that. So do you think it was probably you know, different for parents, your parents or my parents' generation, and it's different for us now? No, because you're you're being intentional and I'm being intentional. So you're assuming everybody else is being intentional. Have you guys thought of including affluent black and brown people into this conversation? Because from what I'm hearing and what I have seen around me, there is a lot of racism, even based on your socioeconomic status and 
once you reach a certain standard of economic opulence or whatever you call it, you tend to mirror the ideals of the race that you look up to in whatever ways. And I've, I've seen that recently with the controversy surrounding American Dirt Book and how Oprah Winfrey <laughs> introduced it as part of her book club. And there's, there was a picture of Salma Hayek talking about American Dirt. And I was initially surprised, but then I can understand that they are so out of touch with the ground realities that they cannot relate to what's happening to ordinary black and brown people. So do you think it's important to have them as part of the conversation in addition to focusing on white women? Well, here's what I think. I think that we do know, okay? So we all know. We know what's going on. We think when we get to a certain socio economic status that we then become, I don't know, I guess people think they become white, but the reality yeah, is that's they don't. absolutely true. They that's don't. what they think. That's right. Because President Obama will tell you, you know, as a black man, he still couldn't get a cab in Harlem. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I think people are fooling themselves and the people that I know most of the people that I know at my socioeconomic level are still fighting for basic human and racial equality. Right. You know, we do that. Okay, so I, let me let me respond to that. Yes, obviously, there's a dissection, there's an intersection of race and class hmm. completely. Okay, number one. Number two, like Regina says, class doesn't erase racism. What's deeply problematic is the Salma Hayek's and the you know Oprah Winfrey's of the world who are are so mired in whiteness that they've they've chosen you know um, chosen to forget racism, which by the way they still experience whether or not they mm-hmm. want to talk about it they still mm-hmm. experience it. What we are focused on, you know, we've gotten raked over the coals by everybody. Everybody has come for us, and and here's the reality: all we're doing is no longer giving up our labor for free. And what I think is amazing about people freaking out over the cost of this is, first of all, they thought it was $2,500 a person, which, by the way, even if it was, it's still not, we're still not charging enough, but it's not. That's for the whole dinner. So it's roughly, you know, it was $300 per person, but we realized with the massive reach out for more dinners after the Guardian article, we're we're not charging enough. But I want to flag this for you. Tim Wise, white guy, anti-racism work, charges $20,000 for one talk. No dinner, talk. Glennon Doyle, who the fuck is Glennon Doyle? She charges $40,000 for an anti-racism talk, white woman. Mm-hmm. Robin DeAngelo, white woman, charges $12,000. Me and Regina are getting trashed by all sides for walking away from six hours of work each, from start to finish with these dinners, for walking away with $500 each. If right. we're lucky. If we're lucky. Because okay. we still pay people for doing the work. Yeah. That work for us. One of the things that I want to flag is how, and I think it is generally immigrant people, because I think when black people are talking about white people, they say white people. When immigrants are talking about white people, they say Americans. That's a huge fallacy because they are no more American than me. And I don't want to be lumped together with white people. So when you're talking about white people, say white people. Hmm. Yeah. But but also back to would we do this with other people? Yes. So a big part of what Regina and I have talked about 
is we could absolutely do dinners like this with a table full of Asian women, right? right? Yeah. We could do it with a table full of Latina women. We could do it with a table full of wealthy black women, except it wouldn't be my place to be in that room. So Regina could do it with a, a room full of wealthy black women. Why do you think it's not your place to be there? Because it's not. I, mean, I would think that it would be. Really? Regina? Okay. Absolutely. Um, anyway, that's up for discussion. But here's the reality, Sadia. We are two people. Hmm. We have no help. We are really making no money. And we, like, the overarching thing here is white supremacy. Hmm. And the hordes and hordes and hordes of white women who have more numbers than we do, even combined, right? It's overwhelming. So we have we have more than enough work uh, with just white women. Mm-hmm. And what we're actively working on now, because the big responses um, after this Guardian piece has been from women of color around the country wanting to do this in their own cities. Mm-hmm. And we just realized, I mean, we went through the hundreds of people who want to do dinners, and we just sat down two days ago and said, we'll do 25. So the first 25 who sign up and put in their deposits, Regina and I will be there. But, I mean, what about all the women in Seattle and Houston and and Boston and, you know, Chicago who have asked? Women in their own communities can and should do those dinners. So we're working right now on coming up with a way to license this so women around the country can take our model hmm. and, and do it themselves. So are you seeing any themes that arise from these conversations that you're having? Well, my biggest thing is white people don't tell the truth. This country is founded on lies, hmm. and they have such a hard time telling the truth. That's the theme. So, hmm. okay, so there are a couple of themes, and this is nothing you don't know. Silence, and, and that's, you know, that's a piece of not telling the truth. Number two, perfectionism. So one is, is overtly lying. Not me, not me. That's not me, right? The other is not wanting to say the wrong thing. So in addition to being afraid of pissing off, and they'll say this to us, um, the silence comes from fear. So they're scared of their husbands, they're scared of their fathers, they're scared of their sons, they're scared of their uncles and pissing them off. So you're talking about white women being scared of uh, men in their lives, basically. Yes. 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 They're also scared of the white women in their lives. They're scared of bucking Social isolation. Social isolation. And as this one white woman told me in New York, she said, what we can't understand that you've done is that you penetrated, by the way, like Chelsea Clinton was in my book club in New York. She was like, mm. you know, you've penetrated the highest echelons of white womanness mm. and you've committed social suicide. And I was like, social suicide with white women. Mm. Most of my friends now in my community are black and brown women. They couldn't, they can't even see that because for them, social suicide, the only people who exist and matter are white women. Yeah. And so what she said is, I'm not afraid of dying. Like these white women, a lot of them are scared of their husbands. You know, husbands are going to leave them. They're going to be destitute. They're going to end up dying alone. This woman in New York was like, I could give a fuck about that because she's independently wealthy. She said, what scares me about doing what you're doing and speaking the way you're speaking in front of other white women is social suicide and be Jane Elliott. That's why we're going to go talk to Jane Elliott is she experienced complete social death. Her mother dumped her. In fact, after her dad died, her mother dumped her, like everyone left her. And so that's like part of the ecosystem. By the way, they had their husbands who they deemed to be their bosses, call my husband Hmm. and tell my husband to silence me. 
So step one, silence, you know, brown woman talking about racism. Step two, that doesn't work. Shit. Okay. Um, <laughs> ghosting didn't work, you know, trashing me all over the place didn't work. So let's go to the head honcho. Let's go to the, we'll go tell our boss to come for her boss. And so what then ended up happening is these husbands then um, employed male solidarity, right? So they call my husband hoping that they could use the age old male solidarity hmm. and my husband didn't do it. So it's various breaks in the script. And so he would tell me when these people would say to him and what, what was also really interesting for him, it was white men basically instructing him to come for his brown wife and extremely racist. And then Indian men telling him to come for his wife because it was embarrassing them as Indians for what I was saying. Why do you think they feel it's embarrassing them? I can't wrap my head around it. I am still confused as to why is it embarrassing? You're a different person, right? Because I look bad. It looked like I'm now high profile enough that they don't want other people to think that they're remotely like me because we're a monolith after all. You know, <laughs> Mohammed Atta um, is somehow every South Asian guy. Mm. So mm. Saira Rao, talking like a lunatic, you know, UVA grad, NYU grad, they can't say that I'm not educated. That's what's so subversive about this is I am the model minority to the to the 10th degree and they want me to shut the fuck up, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's, they want me to, to go away because it, it makes them look bad. I'm not going to name names, but I mean, my husband has family members mm. who have said that I'm embarrassing the family, you know, it's, it's, it's a real thing. And by the way, there's plenty of South Asians like you, by the way, you know, plenty like you who have said, keep going, like mm. you're giving me strength and you're giving me power. So, you know, it goes both ways, but trust me, there is a huge amount. When I ran for Congress, mm -hmm. I mean, this is classic. When I ran for Congress, the um, APAC, the Asian American, you know, PAC uh, in D.C. Ha has a big gala every spring. Mm -hmm. And they invited all the Asian Americans running for office. And there were like eight of us running for Congress at the time, except for me. They didn't invite me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you know who invited me? And I went and they all died. Andrew Yang invited me to go as his date. So I went with Andrew and they all were like, holy fuck, she came like, huh. and I was told by more than one person there that they feel like my platform is too radical and alienating. And do you know why? It's because I had Black Lives Matter on my website. And mm -hmm. I was told specifically to take that down because it's too alienating to a lot of um, Asian people. So, hmm. you know, take that as you will. But it's a real thing. How many other Asian people do you know who are going around talking about racism, like as blatantly as I am? I don't know very many. Yeah, not, not many. I just follow you on Twitter and I really enjoy your tweets every day. <laughs> <laughs> She's talking plenty shit. <laughs> so in the end, um, I ask all my guests this question. If you were to describe America today, how would you do that? I can tell you. Hmm? America is no different now than it's ever been. It is founded on lies, violence, genocide, erasure, rinse, repeat. That's America. Hmm. And Regina, you? You know, I have this little theory. And my theory is that 
And, and Cyrus says, well, they'll change the finish line. But I think probably in another maybe 30 to 50 years, America is is very much a melting pot. I think we're all, all going to look exactly alike and you won't be able to tell who's what. I believe in keeping one's identity while integrating in America. I think the idea of melting pot is extremely overrated and it it leads to the kind of racism that we see because somehow everybody who comes to America is expected to be the same like everybody else and it is unfair. I think we can all maintain our own identity and be part of America. Yes, I think I think that's absolutely true. You know, we all have to keep our culture. And I think that's the hardest thing when you start having adult children and they marry within a different culture is maintaining the culture with your children and grandchildren. Hmm. This was so good, both of you. And thank you so much for what you guys are doing. So how did you like the episode? Write to us. Tell us what you thought. Our email is info at immigrantlypod.com. As you can see, we are trying to push boundaries and bring topics that many people are not talking about. And it is extremely important that we start talking about these things if we want our society to heal. I also know that without your support, I cannot continue producing this amazing content. So if you want to contribute to Immigrantly, you can go on our website, immigrantlypod.com. You can donate to our GoFundMe or Patreon, become our monthly subscriber. Also, don't forget to come back next time for another episode. And in the meantime, stay connected.